coordination. Welcome to the lead. A news conference is starting right now after a deadly high school shooting in Perry, Iowa. Let's listen in to the governor. The Iowa State Patrol, DCI, ATF, and the FBI, and multiple health care providers. I had the opportunity a few moments ago to speak with some of the officers involved. And in a situation like this, as we all know, every minute counts. And their heroic actions today, we can say, saved lives. The response was tremendous, and we're extremely grateful. The full resources of the state government will be available to assist in the response and, of course, the community's recovery from this tragic event. The mental health region uh, has social workers that are embedded in the school district and will provide counseling services for the students, the families, and the staff. As you all know, this is an ongoing investigation, so law enforcement will brief you only on what they can at this time, and they will provide additional information as it becomes available. And so with that, I'd like to turn it over to, chief, to the chief. Thank you. I'm Chief Eric Vaughn from the Perry Police Department. I want to thank the quick actions of the Dallas County dispatchers who handled and dispatched the calls regarding this traffic, tragic event this morning. I also want to recognize the initial officers from the Perry and Dallas County Sheriff's Office and their actions on scene. Thank you to the massive response from agencies throughout the area, including EMS, for their assistance today. It is truly amazing to see first responders work together in these crisis situations. And I cannot forget to recognize the teachers, faculty, and students involved who acted bravely and heroically in this tragic situation. Thank you to the community support we have seen and we will continue to need in the future. All of our condolences to the victims and their families. They need your thoughts and prayers, as well as time and space to process and to grieve. This community has been through tough times before and have rallied together. I'm sure this time will be no different. Thank you. I introduce Mitch Mortvet. Thank you, Chief. My name is Mitch Mortvet. I'm an assistant director with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation. At 7.37 a.m., <clears throat> excuse me, on January 4th, 2024, the Perry Police Department responded to an active shooter event at Perry High School. Meanwhile, Dallas County Communications was also receiving multiple 911 calls of an active shooter at the high school. Perry police officers responded within minutes. They immediately made entry and witnessed students and faculty either sheltering in place or running from the school. <clears throat> Once inside, they located multiple individuals with gunshot wounds. Officers immediately attempted to locate the source of the threat and quickly found what appeared to be the shooter with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. As additional officers responded, 
a systematic approach search of the school took place. Officers located during the search of the school an improvised explosive device. The state fire marshal and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms rendered the device safe. Numerous officers from multiple agencies were able to secure the school and verify no additional threats. At the same time, first responders were rendering aid to the victims who were later transported to area hospitals. The shooter has been identified as 17-year-old Dylan Butler, a student at Perry High School. Butler was armed with a pump action shotgun and a small caliber handgun. Butler also made a number of social media posts in and around the time of the shooting. Law enforcement is working to secure those pieces of evidence. All evidence thus far suggests that Butler acted alone. There are six victims, one of them who is deceased. That individual was a sixth grade student at Perry Middle School. The other five are being treated at area hospitals. Four of the surviving student, four of the victim, surviving victims are students, and the fifth is a school administrator. The law enforcement response was swift and immediate. Roughly 150 officers from local, state, and federal agencies responded within the hour. The investigation in today's tragedy is ongoing. The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation is serving as the lead investigative agency with assistance from the Perry Police Department, the Dallas County Sheriff's Office, the FBI, the ATF, and the Dallas County Attorney's Office. At this time, we will take a few questions. Uh, I was told by the father of a student who was shot that his son witnessed Principal Dan Marburger be shot. Is he the administrator and what is his condition? The investigation is ongoing and we're not releasing any other names other than Dylan Butler's name at this time. Can you give us any indication as to motive for this? I know this is ongoing. Anything into the background of him is part of the investigation and we're obviously going to take a deep dive into that, but there's nothing that we can release at this time. At this time, it's my understanding as of about, an, I should say, as of about an hour ago, one was in critical condition but appeared not to be life-threatening, and the other four are stable. Is any racial motivation in this shooting, and are there any Latino victims? As far as the ethnicity of the victims, I'm not sure. Um, and there's nothing to indicate at this time that it had anything to do with race. Um, as far as motive, again, that's part of the background investigation, and that's something that we're continuing to look into. I haven't seen the video, and that I don't know at this time, but we are, law enforcement is working to secure um, those pieces of evidence, as I mentioned in the statement. So there's nothing more that we can comment on about that. This is the first time that we've heard uh, someone from the middle school being involved in the shooting. Do you have an idea as to the path this, uh, this suspect took? It, it, all, it all happened in the uh, Perry High School, and it was before school started, so there were not many students, and it's our understanding that there was a breakfast program going on, so there may have been students of, of different grades, if you will, in the school at that time. But it all was contained in the Perry High School, not in any of the other buildings. 
that's still part of the investigation. We're trying to determine that. How sophisticated was the IE explosive device? I'm sorry, one of you? Yes. I, not much about it other than it was uh, pretty rudimentary and it was rendered safe by, like I said, the state fire marshal and the ATF. Well, I'll let them. Yeah. I'll let them decide how they're going to talk about it. Uh, we're going to focus on the investigation and we're going to focus on making sure that we provide the resources that the community, the teachers, the staff, those that are involved, the families, that we're providing the resources that they need during this difficult time. So that's what I'm going to be focused on, the state of Iowa is going to be focused on, and I'll let the candidates decide what they're going to focus on. Thank you. We're going to take no more questions at this time. Thank you. I mean, as, as it was commented on um, by the chief, that and by the governor as well that uh um you know everybody reacted the way they should and and it's obvious that training first of all at the school level you know with faculty and students um everybody reacted absolutely appropriately the way they should as well as law enforcement as they are entering the building thank you you have been listening uh, to law enforcement giving an update uh, to an early morning uh, shooting at Perry High School and Middle School in, in Perry, Iowa, about, uh, about 40 minutes northwest of uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, you heard law enforcement say that was Mitch uh, Montvent from the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation uh, saying that they responded to an active shooter call before school started uh, and multiple um, 911 calls. They located multiple victims with gunshot wounds. Uh, one person uh, was killed by the shooter. The shooter has been identified <clears throat> as a 17-year-old named Dylan Butler who came with a pump-action shotgun and a small uh, handgun. Uh, the sixth grader was killed. He has not been named. Five others were, were injured, four of them students and one a school administrator, perhaps thought to be uh, the principal of the school. Uh, the shooter is believed to have died by a self-inflicted uh, gunshot wound. Uh, today was scheduled to be the first day of school for the new semester. According to the district's uh, calendar, there was also a rudimentary explosive device found, but that was suggested to have not uh, posed a threat. We also were told uh, by law enforcement that the shooter um, uh, posted a, a number of things on social media, uh, and uh, I'm not sure if they're still up or not. They said something along the lines of they were trying to get them uh, removed uh, from social media, TikTok being one of those social media sites. Let's bring in uh, former uh, police chief, uh, Charles Ramsey. He led police departments in both Washington, D.C. and in Philadelphia. Also with us, uh, Julia Kayyem. She served as the assistant secretary for the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, chief Ramsey, um, uh, I hate the fact that we have so many of these school shootings. And of course, it's the first week back from winter break. And here we go, another school shooting. Um, what are your takeaways from what you just heard from uh, law enforcement? Well, first of all, a sixth grader uh, losing their life, that's probably a 10 or 11 year old child. Uh, I mean, that's just unbelievable that uh, something like that could take place, but it's happening all the time. Uh, this individual, 17 years old, a student uh, of the school, uh, he probably got those guns from home. Uh, he's 17, I don't, 
doubt if he was able to purchase any uh, firearms at all. Uh, he, he came early. It'd be interesting to know whether or not he targeted anyone or not. He posted a lot on social media, um, probably a wealth of information there that they'll wind up being able to come close to a motive uh, for this individual. But again, just one more tragedy that we're now talking about in our country. Uh, Juliet, what, what did you make of the update we heard from authorities just now? Well, I, I think we can't ignore the IED, uh, the the idea that that uh, either he was going to go after first responders who came in. We don't know how big it is. It was described as rudimentary. Uh, obviously, shows some uh, significant pre-planning besides just the entry with the with the guns. Uh, and so they'll look at that, see, you know, did people know he was making something? What did the family know? And then like Chief Ramsey is sort of the possession of the of the guns uh, and, and how he possessed them. There was a question, uh, it was hard to decipher what it was and the chief uh, sort of shut it down about a father. So we don't know uh, what is out there, what people in the community know. Uh, so we'll find out more. Look, this is the first day back from the holidays. Uh, what I'm curious about from an investigatory purpose is what happened at the end of the of the term or the end of December and over the holidays that would have uh, the 17 year old uh, wake up uh, this morning and uh, uh, and and plan this uh, and perform this attack that killed uh, a sixth grader. I mean, and and shot five others. It's, uh, it is uh, horrific. Um, authorities have yeah. said that they found this IED when they searched the school, although they said it was rudimentary and didn't pose yeah. a threat. Um, Juliet, how, how might that impact the investigation? Well, so, so part of this is going to be is it. Let me go back. So there's a performative nature in a lot of these uh, shootings, these mass shootings now, either as we're hearing, there's a video uh, that the person wants to be known. And as we know, in the use of explosives, part of that is it's not just me and the gun, there's going to be a follow up. So I'm very curious about uh, what what he uh, was into, what he was following, um, how he got to this kind of uh, violence, and then what did he intend by, even if it was rudimentary, some sort of explosive um, action that would have um, uh, caused a lot of chaos. See, we don't know if his intention was that the IED goes off, the kids that are on campus run out, and then they become vulnerable targets. So we don't actually know what when that thing was supposed to go off. That's what I'm looking at right now, and obviously the state of mind over the holidays uh, in terms of of him coming back to school or at the beginning of the school term. Chief Ramsey, um, we will uh, have more of these, unfortunately. It's very easy to predict uh, in uh, 2024, uh, more mass shootings, more uh, school shootings. There are so many mass shootings in the United States that American media only uh, is certain categorized, certain categories uh, only qualify uh, people, uh, mass shootings as when four or more innocent people are killed. Uh, this wouldn't even count as a mass shooting event in, in uh, some of the lists because there are just so many. Um, and and uh, w one thing I, I just wonder about is uh, I've talked to law enforcement officials about what can be done about this, because obviously these are if this is, in fact, a double a pump action shotgun and, and a, a small handgun, uh, these would not be affected by a so-called assault weapons ban. Um, and, and one thing I keep hearing is stronger uh, red flag laws. Uh, so that law enforcement is aware of people who might pose a threat to themselves and others, and, and not just stronger laws, but more funding 
uh, and social uh, workers and such that can to deal with that. And also uh, laws that require parents uh, to s store guns safely so that kids can't get access to them. Do you agree with, with that as, as two potential, not solutions to this problem, but, but ways to try to stop this madness? I do agree with that. And I, but I think it's also important to remember that no one thing is going to be foolproof. I mean, there'll be exceptions and people will work around laws and things of that nature. But if this young man did get the guns from the house, I, I do believe that certainly it does point to the fact that firearms need to be secured. If they're not being used by a responsible adult, they need to be uh, secured. I'm sure that they're going to be digging into this young man's history. Probably he had a lot of behavioral issues in school before. Uh, people need to pay attention to social media posts. I don't take it for granted. If somebody's making threats or posting something out of the ordinary, they need to let someone know about it. And we don't know yet exactly what those postings were. But as Juliet said, you know, he didn't just wake up one day and decide he's going to go do a school shooting. There is something going on there that looking back at it, you should be able to pick up a few red flags, I'm sure. A horrible first day back from vacation for the community of Perry, Iowa. Juliet Kayam and Charles Ramsey, thanks to both of you. The headline here, a child, a child only in the sixth grade, around 11 or 12 years old, killed in yet another school shooting in the United States of America. This one in Perry, Iowa, just about 40 minutes northwest of Des Moines, Iowa. A very tragic day for that community and really for all of the United States. We're back in a moment. And we're back with our 2024 lead and take a look from Des Moines. The stage set for two of Donald Trump's main Republican opponents to face the voters in just a few hours. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former United Nations Ambassador and Governor Nikki Haley are going to take questions from Iowa Republican caucus goers in two CNN town halls. Just 11 days, only 11 days before those Iowans become the very first voters in the nation to pick their candidate for the Republican presidential nomination. Donald Trump will not be in attendance tonight, but his dominance over the Republican field could be a main topic for questioners, given that DeSantis has faced not one, but two Iowa voters just yesterday who questioned why he has not yet gone directly after Donald Trump. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is in Des Moines for us at the site of tonight's CNN Town Halls. Jeff, what do we know about the strategies of Governor DeSantis and Ambassador Haley as they prepare to face Iowa voters at the town halls this evening? Well, Jake, the strategies in one respect are the same in that they're trying to close the sale with any undecided Republican voters. And there are many of those. I spoke with one woman yesterday who said she's looking for a candidate with integrity. But at the end, it's a gut feeling. She will be watching the town hall tonight. She's been at several events. So she sort of underscores at the end of this race, uh, you know, you sort of just know it when you see it. But separately of that, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is trying to make the argument that he can be uh, sort of the Trump administration's continuation without the drama and that he can get the job done. He talks a lot about the eight years that he could serve in office. Of course, if Donald Trump is reelected, he can only uh, serve one more term. So that's one distinction. Also, electability. That has been becoming a central argument of both of these candidates in the final days of this race. Uh, the Florida governor yesterday was making the argument to voters that uh, he said Donald Trump simply can't win. He pointed out the midterm election results from uh, President Trump's time in office. Nikki Haley has been also talking about electability, looking ahead past this primary and saying that she has the strongest uh, showing against 
of President Biden. But of course, before any of that can happen, they must convince these Iowa Republicans that they can actually uh, compete going forward. So Nikki Haley may be looking for perhaps a few more moderate Republicans. Uh, Ron DeSantis may be looking for a few more uh, MAGA um, conservatives, if you will, who are simply looking to turn the page. But at the end of the day, they are trying to not only peel away some Trump support, but also motivate some Republicans who may be sitting on the sidelines wondering what the outcome to all of this may be, Jake. And Jeff, of course, uh, would it not so, but of course, money is a big factor as well. Uh, How are these candidates stacking up uh, cash-wise as we head into the last days of the Iowa race? Because they're going to need money to go beyond Iowa for TV ads, for for getting out the vote, and, and on and on. Well, Jake, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, the end of this uh, year-long campaign, Nikki Haley is on very strong financial footing, almost reversing the fortunes of Ron DeSantis. He is closing in a much weaker uh, position. His super PAC and his campaign are not advertising on television here, with the exception of one new super PAC, simply because they spent much of their money earlier on in the year. Nikki Haley did not have that money earlier on. She has raised it, raising some $24 million in the last three months alone, more than double what she did in the three months prior to that. So she is putting those ads to use. So money can build an organization. That's what she's hoping to do. But she also is uh, facing some limited time on that. So money, of course, helps, but it's not everything, Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. You can hear directly from these two candidates tonight in the Republican presidential town halls on CNN. Caitlin Collins is going to moderate the first conversation with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That will be at 9 p.m. Eastern. 6 p.m. Pacific. And then immediately after that, Aaron Burnett will host a town hall with former Ambassador Haley. Again, both tonight right here, only here on CNN. Then next Wednesday, six days, I'm going to moderate the CNN Republican presidential debate in Iowa alongside my colleague Dana Bash. That'll be January 10th, just five days before the all-important GOP Iowa caucuses. And that will be live from Des Moines. Donald Trump has plans to be in Iowa tomorrow. Today, he's making moves in court, trying to get the same federal prosecutors who charged the former president with a crime to also pay his legal fees. His latest challenge and the potential for major impact on the federal charges he faces in the election subversion case from the special counsel. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. 
Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our Law and Justice lead now, former President Donald Trump is directly taking on special counsel Jack Smith in a brand new court filing today. Trump and his legal team asking the judge in the January 6th federal election subversion case to sanction special counsel Smith and even consider holding special counsel Smith in contempt for allegedly violating a stay order in Washington, D.C. Seeing as Paula Reed is here. Paula, what exactly is Trump's team arguing here? And is it even remotely credible? Well, Jake, it's a bold ask, but we know there's no love loss between the special counsel and the Trump legal team. The federal election subversion case is currently on hold while Trump litigates these larger questions about possible immunity. But that has not stopped the special counsel from filing motions and submitting discovery. I mean, he had his his staff working through the holiday, something the Trump team legally uh prompted them to accuse him of being a, a Grinch. Now, Jack Smith is very clear about why he is doing this. He said, look, I want to bring this case to trial before the November 2024 election. And he hopes that if he can get all his paperwork in, if those appeals are resolved in his favor, then they can move to trial faster. But that is not how the Trump team is describing it. They insist that this is political. Many of these motions, as you would expect, are critical of the defendant, former President Trump. But the Trump team argues that Smith is operating as an arm of the Biden campaign, and they have a list of things they want the judge to do in response. They want Smith held in contempt. They want him to withdraw his motions, be forbidden from submitting other motions, and then assess monetary sanctions in the amount of Trump's legal fees for dealing with these additional filings. Now, look, the judge overseeing this case, she too has expressed a desire to move this along quickly. It's unclear how she'll rule here, but again, it's unlikely they're going to get everything they've asked for. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss a former attorney for the former president, Jim Trustee. Jim, thanks so much for being here. Happy New Year. Do you think um, Judge Chutkin will actually comply with this request to, to sanction Special Counsel Smith? Yeah, too early to know. I mean, we haven't seen a response from the Special Counsel's office yet. Uh, You know, normally, Jake, when you're talking about stayed proceedings where there's been a court order either by the trial court or an appellate court to stop everything, that's usually referring to simply ongoing hearings, litigation, you know, court appearances. And so it it struck me that this is very different, at least from the reading of the Trump motion. When you read the motion, it says, no, we actually talked very specifically to the judge and she agreed that this was something where we're staying all of the activity. In other words, don't give us motions during this period, don't give us discovery. And they complain about getting 4,000 pages of discovery and some motions that have been filed by Jack Smith. They complain about the substance of the motions too, but they're basically calling foul saying a stay means a freeze. And I think that's interesting. I mean, it's kind of new territory for me. I don't usually associate that with a stay, but if they truly created a record that established that this is supposed to be a freeze from the burdens of litigation was the phrase they use, then the thing has some life, it has some potential. But you've never heard of such a thing before. I haven't seen it myself. I don't want to pretend I can speak for, you know, all federal prosecutions around the country. But, you know, again, it's very factual. It's a question of whether Judge Chutkin specified in her part of the stay that she's saying, I don't want any activity that affects Team Trump and their uh, their labor. Asking why special counsel Jack Smith should um, face monetary sanctions uh, to, to, to help cover some of Trump's attorney's fees doesn't that seem a bit of a stretch? Well, that's when you're talking about contempt, that's what you're usually talking about. You know, you're talking about uh, claiming misconduct, claiming a willful violation of a court order. And that's the thing that gets the lawyer's attention is when they're told it's going to come out of your pocket. So, you know, again, it's the the foundational question of whether or not they violated 
the stay is going to drive all of the remedies. If they violated the stay, the judge has discretion. She could say, I'm going to give this a warning. You know, this is atypical. So I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to let you refile. There's a lot of things she can do because it's all within kind of equity, you know, in terms of fairness, what she wants to do. But that is a legitimate option when there's contempt is to say, I'm going to fine you for the attorney fees for the amount of time that the attorneys had to spend sifting through your motion or through your uh, 4,000 pages. Right. But when Special Counsel Smith turns over 4,000 pages of discovery documents, which for the people at home means we found these and now it is our obligation to present to you, the defendant, these documents as well. The idea that the Trump legal team would be arguing, well, we're not supposed to be getting anything right now, even though Jack Smith theoretically, uh, let's assume he, he doesn't interpret the stay the same way, he's just doing what he's required to do for fairness under the law. There's also this subtext of, I think, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, of the Trump legal team saying, we don't want to be able to, we don't want you to be able to say that you gave us these documents in December and January, right? Like some, someday, you know, when the court case is about to start, we want to be able to say we only got them a week ago. So right. we need to push this off even more, right? Isn't it also part of this delay, delay, delay strategy in a way? Well, that's the tactical part. It's a fair observation. Normally, you welcome discovery whenever, however, if you're a defense attorney, you want to get that yeah. and look at it. So that's a fair point. But, you know, look, this, this is a genesis of this is Jack Smith saying we've got to try this case in March, asserting a, a very nebulous speedy trial claim on behalf of the public when really a speedy trial claim is a defendant. So defendant, yes, right, yeah. defense team is saying we need to slow this down. Prosecution, I, I think, is making a very fundamental mistake here. If you think about it, Jake, you know, for something this important, this unprecedented, this creative, the best tactic that the attorney general's office and the special counsel could do is to say we're going to be ridiculously transparent, we're going to be ridiculously patient, because this is about seeking justice, not about politics. Instead, they're saying we've got to get this in before the primary, before Super Tuesday. I just think that's a, the wrong lens to be looking at if you're Jack Smith, to say we must get this done before the election, basically feeds into the narrative that's entirely political. So I still see that Trump is planning to attend next week's federal appeals court arguments on whether or not he can claim presidential immunity for his actions as president that are, that are currently uh, under investigation. Do, do you think that's a good idea for him to be there? I mean, look, most, most of the time, the clients I have, they're going to be there. Uh, you know, it's different when you're a, a former president with all the security apparatus and you're running for president at the same time. I think it's a good idea. I think it's not, it, look, not on some tactical level where, you know, the bench is going to bow down because he's there, but because he gets to see it unfiltered. He gets to see and hear how his attorneys are being treated, how they're performing, what are the arguments that are sticking or not sticking. So I think it's always generally good for a client to see these things. All right. Interesting. Jim Trusty, thanks so much. Appreciate right, it. Sure thing. Coming up next, a significant admission today from ISIS. The terrorist group is now claiming responsibility for those deadly twin bombings near the burial site of Iranian military commander Qasem Soleimani. What's also striking is Iran is not disputing the claim. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, Iranian state media is repeating and notably not challenging the claim by ISIS that they, ISIS, were responsible for Wednesday's deadly terrorist attack in Iran. State media, which is under the control of Iran's supreme leader, is sharing ISIS's statement on the twin blasts that killed 84 people, which is revised down from yesterday's number. Still, 84 is quite a massacre. The terrorist attack targeted mourners who were gathered to observe the fourth anniversary of the killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in a U.S. airstrike ordered by President Trump. 
Nick Robertson's in Tel Aviv and CNN's Alex Marquardt is here with me in D.C. And Nick, before ISIS claimed responsibility, accusations were flying. Iran publicly accused Israel. Uh, now they're saying uh, that, that ISIS did this um, because Israel commanded them to do so, which is a bizarre thing to say. Um, but more importantly, we keep hearing the phrase fears of a wider war. Is this wider war essentially already happening? Um, certainly the temperature that could lead towards it is there. I sat down and chatted today with the former military intelligence chief at the IDF, who was, by the way, the F-16 fighter pilot that dropped the bomb on Iran's, uh, Iraq's nuclear plant back in the 80s and then developed the military plan to take down Bashar al-Assad's nuclear power plant in 2007. This is a former Israeli official who knows a thing or two about regional tensions. He told me that right now, everything, all the strikes that have taken place that Israel has been responsible for, those it has and hasn't claimed, and the United States have been responsible for, are below the threshold that they think Iran would have a response that would escalate. But I said to him, why so many strikes, so many of these red button hits for Iran so quickly? Israel took the gloves off. You can see it in Gaza. You can see it with Hariri in Beirut. You can see it with uh, the general in Damascus, even though nobody took responsibility, but uh, the Iranians blamed Israel. And, and, and the Iranians blame Israel as well for that attack at the, the grave at Soleimani. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. It's not the way that Israelis operate. Israel is very precise, as you saw it in Beirut. Excellent intelligence, real-time intelligence. So I think to your point earlier, Jake, that, Israel, that Iran is now saying, well, it was Israel that was behind ISIS. Kind of no surprise. The, the Iranian leadership there is obviously trying to save face because it already accused Israel, already said there would be a response. And if they hadn't have blamed Israel, they probably would have blamed the United States for creating ISIS, another counter-narrative that exists here in the Middle East. Yeah, but obviously on its face, it's preposterous that ISIS would take orders from Israel. Um, Alex, for just the, the second time in just over a week, the U.S. targeted Iranian-backed militants in Iraq in retaliation for more than 100 recent attacks launched on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. This time it was a, a member of an Iranian proxy group with, quote, U.S. blood on his hands, according to a U.S. official. This comes as U.S. Secretary of State Blinken is setting out on a big Middle East trip. Yeah, 115 attacks against U.S. and coalition forces in Iraq and Syria uh, since October 17th. And, and this fear of a wider regional war is going to be a major topic for Secretary Blinken as he goes back to the region for the fourth time since this war started. He's making nine different stops. It's going to come up in conversations with world leaders uh, from across the Arab world. Um, we see these uh, attacks in the Red Sea, the, the escalation with Hezbollah, and then of course the, the growing number of, of strikes and, and uh, attacks in Iraq and Syria. And so the latest response by the U.S., which many have, say, have said is not enough in terms of uh, making, making these, these attacks stop, was today the U.S. striking uh, the leader of an Iranian-backed proxy group uh, in the middle of Baghdad. He and his assistant, his assistant were killed in a car. Very remarkable that it took place in the Iraqi capital. The Iraqis are furious, talking about a violation uh, of sovereignty. Um, but this is certainly something that the U.S. says will continue as long as these attacks against 
uh, U.S. forces go on. But of course, Jake, the centerpiece of this trip is going to be Blinken's stop in Israel, uh, where he's expected to pressure the Israelis to do more when it comes to civilian casualties in Gaza, when it comes to getting more aid into Gaza. He's obviously going to be talking about uh, hostages, but there is a real sense of pressure from the White House that they want the Israelis to transition from that high-intensity phase that we've been seeing for the past few months to a lower-intensity phase in which civilians, fewer civilians would be hurt and killed. All right, and quickly, Nick, not only is the Middle East on uh, edge, Russia's war on Ukraine is nearing its second year, and now Russia appears to be in active negotiations with Iran to buy ballistic missiles as Russia steps up its attacks on Ukraine. Tell us more about this Russia-Iran defense partnership. Yeah, look, it's been blossoming since they started buying those Shahed drones that they fire every day at, Iraq, at uh, Ukraine. And that's something that we've just seen really escalate the war, escalate the misery of the Ukrainian uh, people. And, and Iran has a level of expertise with these ballistic missiles. They've been giving them to the Houthis who have been firing them at Israel. They've fired them into Saudi Arabia. Um, th these are very, very dangerous and well-tried and tested missiles. This will further add to the suffering in Ukraine. All right, CNN's uh, Nick Robertson uh, in Israel and uh, Alex Marquardt here in studio with me. Thank you so much. In Gaza, nearly all the hospitals are you're currently unable to care for those wounded in the war. We're gonna take you to a ship that has arrived uh, and is in the Mediterranean right off the coast and it's trying to save lives on sea. That's next. And we're back with our world lead. The U.S. State Department says that Israel's intention of protecting civilians in Gaza is not matching its results. And that is, of course, clear to many of the wounded and sick in Gaza who suffer without access to any real medical care. CNN's Nana Bashir brings us now the stories of a lucky few who are getting life-saving treatment on a medical ship off the coast. But first, we, we do want to warn our viewers, some of the content of this report is disturbing. The familiar, innocent scrawls of a child. But this child has been through the unimaginable. One of nearly 100 patients evacuated from Gaza to the Dixmude, a French helicopter carrier turned hospital ship, kitted out with specialist medical facilities. Doctors here say they have already carried out 130 operations in just over a month. With patients as young as three, and injuries spanning from severe burns to amputations. We were going to bed at night. I remember I covered my face with my blanket, 10-year-old Meher says. Then suddenly, I found myself in the hospital. I don't know what happened. Like many his age, Meher's dream was to become a footballer. The aftermath of the airstrike still painful in Meher's memory. 22-year-old Mohanned was also evacuated in December after his leg was severely injured. His aunt says that Mohanned's learning difficulties mean he is unable to fully grasp the horror they have left behind. When we call our relatives in Gaza, there are always airstrikes around them, Nisreen says. They've been displaced over and over again. They keep being told to move to safe areas, but there isn't a single safe place left in Gaza anymore. The photos of family members killed seem endless. Nieces and nephews, or children, seen in this video. All killed, she says, when their shelter, a UN-run school, was struck. 
I hope I can return to Gaza, to be with whatever family I have left. I just hope they will be okay. That's all we can hope for in this life. Holding on to that hope grows more difficult with each passing day. And while the medical team here does its best to heal the physical wounds of its patients, it's clear that the emotional scars of this war run deep. When the patients arrive here, they all have this look in their eyes, one which makes you feel they have come out of something very, very difficult, Dr. Huber says. It's a bit shocking for us. We're not used to seeing this look, especially from children. Inside Gaza, death seems near impossible to escape. And for the thousands wounded, there is no respite. The vast majority of hospitals in the Strip are no longer operational. Doctors forced to work under Israel's unrelenting airstrikes with limited medical supplies. Only a small handful of war wounded have so far been evacuated. Facilities like this are few. The evacuation process precarious. And while the shattered bodies of these survivors are now slowly on the mend, some have turned their minds to remolding the fragments of their lives back home. Gaza is my home. Even if I die, I want to die in Gaza, Abdurrahim says. We'll rebuild everything, even if we have to start from zero. And of course, Jake, inside Gaza, the healthcare infrastructure is in a, is in a state of near total collapse. And of course, we have now been hearing those warnings from the UN's humanitarian office of the risk of what they've described as a public health disaster with the spread of diseases and infections amongst those displaced in Gaza. And of course, now those warnings of the very real risk of starvation. All right, CNN's Nana Bashir is in Beirut for us. Thank you so much. Former President Donald Trump, former President Bill Clinton, Prince Andrews, what do they have in common? They are all named in court documents that just dropped in the Jeffrey Epstein case. How? And who else might be named in more documents expected to come out? We'll get into that next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper this hour. Something we don't hear a lot about these days. Several big U.S. cities are reporting a drop in murder rates. But that does not mean crime is not still running rampant. Plus, in Israel, the terrorist attack carried out by Hamas on October 7th. I'll speak with a man who was at the Nova Music Festival and saw horrific acts with his own eyes, well beyond anything you've likely ever heard. He's going to share what he saw and tell us why he feels it's so important for the world to hear. And leading this hour, we're standing by for a brand new batch of unsealed documents and possible VIP names expected to drop any minute now tied to accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. CNN's Gene Casares has been combing through hundreds of pages that were released last night and brings us this report on what we're learning. A new window to see the complicated company many of the world's most powerful people keep. Sealed court filings pertaining to the late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein were made public Wednesday, the first of many documents expected to be released in the coming days. 
prominent figures, many who had been previously linked to Epstein, like former presidents Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, were named in the filings, though not accused of any wrongdoing. The documents stem from a civil defamation lawsuit that was settled in 2017 by Virginia Roberts Dufre against Epstein's former confidant, Ghislaine Maxwell. The unsealed filings contain a 2016 deposition from one of Epstein's alleged victims, Joanna Schoberg. There was some new information that came out, especially with respect to the deposition of Joanna Schoberg and understanding who she is in this whole Epstein web. She was the primary accuser of Prince Andrew. Much of this information was her firsthand accounts of what she had seen, observed, and heard in her dealings with Epstein. Schoberg recalled that Epstein spoke to her about Bill Clinton. Quote, he said one time that Clinton liked them young, referring to girls. When asked if Clinton was a friend of Epstein, she said she understood Epstein had dealings with Clinton. In her deposition, she says, I heard Jeffrey Epstein say this. So it's telephone, right? It's, 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 it would be hearsay in a court of law. It wouldn't be admissible in the civil case. So take that and extrapolate it to a criminal case. It's certainly not going to move the needle on that front. Clinton has not been accused of any crimes or wrongdoing related to Epstein. His spokesman on Wednesday reiterated that Clinton knew nothing of Epstein's crimes and told CNN that it has now, quote, been nearly 20 years since President Clinton last had contact with Epstein. In her deposition, Schoberg also recalled a time she was with Epstein on one of his planes, and pilots said he needed to land in Atlantic City. Quote, Jeffrey said, great, we'll call up Trump and we'll go to, I don't recall the name of the casino, but we'll go to the casino. Schoberg said in her deposition she never gave a massage to Trump. He is not accused of wrongdoing related to Epstein. The Trump campaign responded to a request for comment by attacking the media. The documents also contain excerpts of depositions taken from Virginia Roberts, Jufre, and Maxwell. Jufre alleged in her deposition that Maxwell directed her to have sexual contact with people, including Prince Andrew. She previously reached an out-of-court settlement in her sexual assault lawsuit against him. Andrew has denied all the allegations. Also a part of the new releases, Maxwell's own words. I saw some very interesting exchanges uh, between Sigrid McCauley. She's an attorney who's represented many of the victims in many cases, and Maxwell. Uh, there was one exchange in which McCauley asked Maxwell, did you ever tell anyone that you recruited girls in order to take pressure off yourself? And Maxwell retorted, you don't ask me questions like that. Attorneys for Ghislaine Maxwell said in a statement on Wednesday, quote, she has consistently and vehemently maintained her innocence. She is currently appealing a 20-year prison sentence following her 2021 conviction on five counts, including sex trafficking of a minor. Now, there are three names that are still sealed in the documents that have been released so far. It's from the deposition of Virginia Dufre. And according to this deposition, she says she was ordered to have relations with them. Now, we know a little bit. One is an unnamed prince. Another is an owner of a very large hotel chain. The third is just an unnamed person at this point. And, Jake, there are two J. Does, so we don't know if they're John or, or uh, Jane, 
but they are contesting to be unsealed. They're before court right now. One judge is asking for more evidence on all this. Another judge is just allowing the process to go forward. So we are now expecting more documents tonight. Gene, just your best guess. Are we, the public, going to find out the names of any of these high-rolling friends of Jeff Epstein who actually victimized these young women, these victims of, of, of sexual human trafficking? Are we ever going to find out those names uh, definitively? Let's look at the facts. There is some documentation from the court when they said they were going to release these documents. They said some names would not be unsealed because of privacy interests at this point. And the privacy interests outweighed the public's access at this point. Now, what's the underlining meaning of that? We don't know. So we'll just have to wait and see, Jake, if that falls into that category. All right, Gene Casares, thanks so much. Let's bring in investigative journalist and the executive producer of the podcast and docu-series, Chase and Ghislaine, uh, which examines Ghislaine Maxwell's relationship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Vicki Ward brings, uh, joins us again. Vicki, good to see you again. Thanks so much for joining. What are your initial takeaways from going through this first batch of more than 900 pages of unsealed documents? Well, Jake, uh to be honest, I was not that surprised um, by the prominent names. Um, you know, Virginia Jeffrey has been public for a long time um, about those names. I just found it a really sickening portrait of uh, what went on in Jeffrey Epstein's homes for so long and at such scale. I mean, what what having visibility onto a lot of these names really do is, is really make this horrendous criminal sexual enterprise, unfortunately, very vivid. Some of the anecdotes and some of the, you know, the stories we didn't know before, there's a butler who described his role as being like a human ATM, doling out cash uh, to the women, some of them children who, you know, came in and out of the home in Palm Beach uh, daily, it was it was really difficult to read, and to be honest, that was that was the overwhelming impression um, that stuck with me. Now we should note, obviously, that someone's name appearing as an associate of Jeffrey Epstein does not mean definitively that that person has committed or been accused of any wrongdoing. But that said, are there any names that you were surprised to see in this first patch of documents? Uh, David Copperfield, the magician. Uh, I hadn't particularly heard about him before. Uh, Michael Jackson. Uh, hadn't heard that one before. I did know, uh, I had read about Stephen Hawking uh, visiting Jeffrey Epstein's island. Because you have to remember, I mean, the, the, Jeffrey Epstein used scientists and academics brilliantly a sort of camouflage it gave him a respectability with which to then uh mingle with with powerful rich politicians like bill clinton um you know billionaires like leslie wexner uh you know he was very brilliant actually at manipulating the plutocracy just as much as he was able to manipulate young vulnerable girls Again, we should note former President Bill Clinton's name appears. He has not been accused uh, with evidence of any wrongdoing. But what is your reaction 
to this 2016 deposition uh, by Joanna Joburg uh, recounting this conversation she had with Epstein in which Epstein uh, said about Clinton that he likes them young. Right, well, you know, unfortunately, I dealt with Jeffrey Epstein uh, way back in 2002 when I had to write a profile of him for Vanity Fair magazine. And, you know, Jeffrey Epstein would often invoke the names of his famous and powerful friends. And to be honest, you have no idea uh, how much of it was just braggadocio. You know, he used to threaten me that, you know, Leslie Wexner, who was a business associate of him at the time, would, you know, could possibly pull advertising if he didn't like what I was going to write. You know, it's, it's as, as Jean said earlier, you know, it's hearsay. And with Epstein, you just don't know. You, it's hard to sort out the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. You also say that, that these documents uh, offer a shocking reminder of the role that other women played in keeping this ecosystem of abuse going. Abuse, we should note, by men, but women played a role. T- tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think having the names of the women now visible and public, uh, it's really jarring to, to read these names, Emmy, Sarah, Nadia, and obviously we don't know what roles uh, went on in terms of uh, did they cooperate with the feds uh, regarding uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's criminal conviction. We don't know what's gone on behind the scenes, but what you can see just in these depositions is a really sickening pyramid where, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell is at the center. She even describes herself at one point as a mother hen, but these women come in probably as victims for the first time, but then they go out and they recruit other women who recruit other women who all end up doing Jeffrey Epstein's bidding. And it's, uh, it's really distressing. Yeah. Vicki Ward, thank you so much. We'll have you back for, uh, for future uh, tranches released of these names. We're going to stay on top of this story. Uh, these, these young girls and women deserve justice. Thank you again. This coming Saturday will mark three years since that deadly attack at the U.S. Capitol. A top lawyer for the D.C. National Guard tried to report problems with the response as a whistleblower, he says. And now he says he faced retaliation for what he said. He's going to join me next. In our law and justice lead, as the United States comes up on three years since that horrible day, the January 6th attack on the Capitol, a former lawyer for the D.C. National Guard says he is facing retaliation from the U.S. Army. Colonel Earl Matthews is accusing the brother of former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, General Charles Flynn, as well as Army Lieutenant General Walter Pyatt, of being, quote, absolute and unmitigated liars. He made that accusation in a 36-page memo sent to the now disbanded January 6th Select Committee. Colonel Matthews said the two men lied to Congress in an attempt to rewrite how the military responded to the January 6th attack, and Colonel Earl Matthews and his attorney, Andrew Bakai, join us uh, right now. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Let me start with you, Colonel Matthews. So key to this dispute is who was responsible for that four-hour delay it took uh, to deploy the National Guard as rioters breached the Capitol. In the memo you sent to Congress, you accused the Pentagon of being behind that delay, and you point to these two people who you claim were concerned with optics instead of security. Tell us about that. Well, uh, just to be clear... um uh, Walter Pyatt and Michael, Michael uh, and Charles. Charles Flynn were not in the chain of command, but um, 
they were key advisors and uh, key action officers for the Secretary of the Army who was in the chain of command. So what they did and said mattered. And, you know, my concern was not really what they did on January 6th, but what they did after in the aftermath as we, we tried to discover what happened. Now, you mentioned that I was the senior legal officer for the D.C. National Guard. A little bit more about my background. I was actually the chief legal officer of the Department of the Army. Mm -hmm. So between January 2000, I'm sorry, June 2017 and January 18, I was the acting general counsel of the Army. So I, I know Mike, uh, I'm sorry, I, I know uh, Ryan McCarthy, the Secretary of the Army. He was a good friend of mine. Mark Milley, Chris Miller, uh, Secretary of Defense. They were personal friends of mine. I was a senior official at the uh, NSC, a senior director for defense. So I, my issue is, Jake, that I, in, in November of 2021, a DODIG report came out, as I reviewed, it was uh, flawed, it was filled with um, uh, factual inaccuracies, factual inaccuracies, yeah. uh, deliberate misrepresentations, half-truths uh, by Army officials, and I was concerned. Why was I concerned? Because I, I love the United States Army, I'm a soldier, um, I, at the core of the Army ethos is integrity. It's the, it's, it's the Army value which undergirds everything we do. And I saw Army officers not telling the truth, lying about it, and nothing was done about it. Yeah. And Go, go ahead, Andrew. I mean, well, and, and that's the thing about this complaint. Is yeah. The reason why we filed the whistleblower reprisal complaint is because Colonel Matthews has been retaliated against because he brought forward his concerns to mm -hmm. Congress. Yeah. And uh, federal law does prohibit retaliation against military officers because they make a protected disclosure, meaning a disclosure of a violation of law, rule, or regulation. And so right now, what we're doing is we're trying to ensure that Colonel Matthews is being treated with the dignity and respect that he should be afforded. And we're looking forward to having these issues brought to light so that way the forcing functions with the public knowledge of what happened on January 6th can allow for an independent investigation of all of these issues. Yeah. So that way, Army values can be ensured. But more importantly, Jake, I'm a big boy. I'm, I'm not a crybaby here. But, you know, what happened to me is bad, but so what? What I really care about is the Army and about the Army living up to itself. And what my main concern was that when I, my memo came out, the Army doubled down and said they stood by Pied and Flynn. Uh, and they, they supported and believed in the testimony. It was completely accurate. Now, in my memorandum, I have a section called Lying Under Oath, which I go line by line uh, through obvious misrepresentations, obvious misstatements of fact. Do you have evidence beyond your testimony? I'm not saying I, I, yeah. I dispute your testimony, sure. but you have evidence beyond that that proves that they were lying in, their, in what they told Congress? Sure, well, if you look at uh, Charles Flynn's testimony on June of 2021 to the House Oversight Committee, and you look at his, test, his uh, transcribed deposition from January 6th Committee, totally contradictory. In, uh, in, in, his, uh, in his June 2021 testimony, he claims that he immediately moved to establish a team of 40 officers and non-commissioned officers to get 154 D.C. National Guardsmen uh, to the Capitol. Now, I, I say in my memo, that is a total misrepresentation. He, yeah. had, he had no role whatsoever in doing that. And I'm, again, Jake, I was, I was the chief legal officer of the Department of the Army. I'm well known to the folks in the Army. They know me. My reputation is solid. I'm, t I'm telling you that, that uh, Charles Flynn, is, his statements were totally false and mistaken. Yeah. And I, I, I outlined all of them. And, and the, uh, the, the, I, just, I want to give you a chance yeah, to sure. respond to something because the Army yeah. is, just gave us a new statement. Okay. Um, and, and they said, quote, while I can't comment on an ongoing action, I can say, as we have before, that the Army's actions on January 6th 
had been well documented and reported on in General Flynn, Charles Flynn, and Lieutenant General Pyatt have been open, honest, and thorough in their sworn testimony with Congress and Department of Defense investigators. We stand by all testimony and facts provided to date and vigorously reject any allegations to the contrary. Well, I, I, I just hope that people will look at Charles Flynn's transcribed deposition testimony and compare it to his, his June 2021 testimony. Totally mm. contradictory. It shows he, he lied. If you go back, if you go to the uh, appendix two of the uh, January 6th committee uh, findings, you show much of the stuff he says is just not true. Uh, and, and you cooperate with that investigation. Exactly. I was, exactly. And I, and I spoke to members of the blue team who were con, uh, conducting that investigation, the investigative team. They, they acknowledged to me that much of what was said was, was not accurate, but yeah. they, they said that they could not, I mean, they could tell the committee, but it was up to the committee to release that. And I think there was a lot of things to focus on uh, the security element in the military. You think that they, the January 6th committee was more focused on Donald Trump yeah, than on other they, things that should be addressed in terms of security if there's a future incident? Exactly. And I think they wanted to hold back on the Army and not, and not come out. And I think your disclosure, in fact, rebutting or I should say going point by point with the DODIG's findings yeah. is really important because that gives an opportunity for DOD to relook and reexamine what they need to do, which okay. is what they need to do to get to the ground truth. You're not in uniform today because you're not here as an officer, but you are still... I'm a reserve officer. You're a reserve so, officer. Yeah. Okay, Colonel Ermathews, Andrew Bakai, thanks for, to both of you for Thank being you. here. Uh, really appreciate it. Stay in touch with us about how this all goes. As we speak, CNN crews are putting the final touches on the stage for back-to-back -to -back town halls tonight in Iowa. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will be up first, then Ambassador Nikki Haley. What might help them break through tonight before voters get to set the real tone and make the real choices in the 2024 race? We're going to get into that next. Stay with us. In our 2024 lead, 2024, cue the music. Yes, the stage is set. Just two hours, CNN's gonna host two town halls. Governor Ron DeSantis and Ambassador Nikki Haley, those are gonna start at 9 p.m. Eastern this evening, just a few hours away. This comes as we're only 11 days away from the Iowa caucuses when the first votes in the 2024 presidential race will actually be cast. Republican strategist Al Stewart and Democratic strategist Karen Finney are here with me now. So, Alice, Iowa votes first, followed by New Hampshire. Uh, Nikki Haley uh, made some comments uh, about this uh, that her opponents are seizing upon. Uh, take a listen. You know Iowa starts it. You know that you correct it. You know that you continue to go... I think it was incredibly disrespectful to Iowans to say somehow their votes need to be, quote, corrected. Uh, I think she's trying to provide an excuse for her not doing well. All right. So she was talking to a New Hampshire audience. And, and there is this history of New Hampshire voting differently than Iowa, whether it's uh, Iowa going for Obama, New Hampshire going for Hillary, uh, or Iowa going for Ted Cruz. You remember that. I and, New Hampshire, that. <laughs> and New Hampshire going for Trump. There is this history, but what do you make of it? Look, I think, look, you look at historically, uh, Iowa generally, whoever wins the Iowa caucus doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the nominee for the party and certainly uh, in the general election. But you still have to love and respect those Iowa voters. Sure. You have to be out there right now, 11 days out, we're in the 11th hour. You're gripping and grinning with those people. You're not giving them the backhand. And I think that was a, a, a mistake. Um, clearly, they're looking at where they feel they're going to land in Iowa, potentially third place. 
but they are doing strong uh, in New Hampshire and South Carolina. She's really playing to that audience. But you have to remember, everything you say is on television and being recorded, and the people in Iowa are, are certainly going to hear that. But I, I think right now she's banking on doing well in Iowa and doing a strong finish in, in New Hampshire and South Carolina. But, but the reality is you, you never want to take Iowa for granted, and you certainly don't want to insult but, them. But, you know, there's also a competition between Iowa and New Hampshire that goes back, you know, for a long time. So I actually view that as she knows her chances in New Hampshire are better. She's doing much better in the polls. DeSantis is trying to make his stand in Iowa. And so this was a way to kind of juice the electorate a little bit to say, come on, y'all, I know you can turn out for me. I mean, we've seen that dynamic as well. So I sort of took, I agree with you. I wouldn't advise, you know, sloughing off any voters at this point, but I think she was trying to kind of appeal to New Hampshire voters and say, come on, I'm counting on you. Yeah, and if there are any voters in Iowa that were kind of on the fence, I think they probably may have dropped in a different, <laughs> in a different backyard after, after that statement. We'll see. So, Alice, uh, for the first time in the 2024 election cycle, Trump is out with a new ad attacking Nikki Haley in New Hampshire, giving you an idea of how good her momentum is in New Hampshire. Here's a little clip of it. Haley and Biden oppose Trump's border wall, confirm warnings of terrorists sneaking in through our southern border. Yet Haley joined Biden in opposing Trump's visitor ban from terrorist nations. Haley's weakness puts us in grave danger. Okay, well, the, the visitor ban was the Muslim ban, which is yeah. which was pretty <laughs> unpopular by a, by a lot of people. But in terms of uh, Trump opposing, uh, in terms of Haley opposing Trump's border wall, um, Haley says that's not true that the Trump people are taking comments out of context. She said the border wall would not be enough. Um, but, but this is clear evidence that he sees her as a threat. Clearly, look, Trump's never let the facts get in the way of a, 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 a good ad, and this is no exception to that. Look, he is obviously seeing her as a threat in New Hampshire, and that is why he's putting this ad out there. If you notice, up until now, his main attacks and ads and, and pushback on, on social media have been against President Biden, thinking he is going to mop the floor in the primary and take on Joe Biden, which is a smart strategy. But if you see them having to go after and spend good, hard money on ads against another Republican, he clearly sees her as a threat in New Hampshire. And, and if I were the Haley campaign, I would say bring it on and double down on, on this issue. There's another ad that I want to show you, also airing, uh, I think this is a digital ad from Chris Christie. Uh, pretty interesting. Take a listen. I have an admission to make. Eight years ago, when I decided to endorse Donald Trump for president, I did it because he was winning. And I did it because I thought I could make him a better candidate and a better president. Well, I was wrong. I made a mistake. What do you think? You know, it's too late, Chris. Come on now. Nobody's, I mean, that's what I would say to him. Nobody's buying it. I mean, he, he made a valiant effort to try to see if he could make some inroads with a slice of the electorate that was in the GOP primary that was open to that message. There aren't enough voters. Clearly, it's not working. He hasn't gained momentum. He had a, a small bump early on, and now... I mean, it's nice. I think it's a lovely ad, but it's, it's just not working at this point. I don't think it's going to, I think what we're going to see at the end of New Hampshire is a lot more calls for him to get out. Yeah, and there's a lot of Republicans that share that sentiment. They have buyer's remorse. They voted yeah. for Trump once and possibly twice, thinking that he would grow into the office, he would tone down the divisive rhetoric, and he didn't, and people are looking to turn the page. I, I do think the best chance for people that share that sentiment with, with Governor Christie is 
let's find another candidate and the party writ large, one candidate, winnow the field after Iowa and New Hampshire, and let's have a good head-to-head -head competition between a non-Trump candidate and Donald Trump, and then we have a fighting who, And who, you like Haley? I, look, I, I'm for anyone that can uh, take on uh, Joe Biden and win, and I don't have a dog in this hunt in terms of who the non-Trump candidate should be, but if you're looking at head-to-heads against uh, Biden, most of the polls show Nikki Haley has a better chance in a Yeah, and I, I think, again, we're seeing that, yes, many Republicans may feel that way, but that is not who is coming out to vote in the primary, unless there's some, you know, crazy thing happens in New Hampshire. So far, it hasn't seemed that that message has really caught on enough to motivate people. All right, Karen and Alice, thanks so much. Good to have you here. The CNN town halls begin tonight at 9 Eastern. CNN's Caitlin Collins will moderate the first conversation with Ron DeSantis. Then Aaron Burnett will host Nikki Haley. Then next Wednesday, I'm going to moderate the CNN Republican presidential debate with my colleague, Dana Bash. That's January 10th. Also live from Des Moines. You should also, by the way, tune into the Situation Room after this show if you want to see an interview with Chris Christie himself. In this first week of 2024, several big cities can now report that their murder rates went down last year. That's noteworthy and positive, but in many cases, overall crime, including violent crime, went up. So what can authorities do about this? I'm going to ask one big city mayor next. Back with our Law and Justice lead now, big city police departments all over the United States are reporting lower murder rates in 2023, plunging between 11% to 20% in cities such as New York and Philadelphia, Detroit, Phoenix, Los Angeles. CNN's Omar Jimenez has been diving into the data. Omar, is this just a blip, these lower murder rates, or, or part of a larger trend? Yeah, so as you showed, the homicide rates for the five biggest cities in the United States, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, Houston, and Phoenix, all fell by over 10%. Places like Philadelphia and Baltimore saw drops in homicides over 20%. So it does appear to be a downward trend, but at least compared to 2020, which is significant because that was the first year of the pandemic and more. But that was also the first year that many of these cities saw a major spike in homicide. So a downward trend, at least compared uh, to there. Now, for many of these cities, they also saw decreases in shootings as well, which is oftentimes uh, a better indicator of at least the willingness to commit violence. That said, not every place saw decreases. Places like Washington, D.C. saw an increase in murders by over 30 percent and and got to a level of homicides not seen in a decade there. And when you look at a place like Memphis, murders jumped over 40% through September when you have places like Detroit that saw their lowest levels of murders since the 60s. So that's sort of the picture when it comes to murders. That said, we were also looking at uh, nonviolent and violent crime as well, because that's a little bit more of a complicated picture. When you look at Chicago, for example, murders and shootings down double digits. But when you look at things like car theft and robberies, those were up 20 and 30 percent. Specifically, since 2019, car theft in Chicago up over 200 percent. In Philadelphia, it was a similar story. Retail theft up almost 30 percent and car theft up almost 70 percent. And that reflects a little bit of what we've seen nationwide. So there are a lot of factors at play when it comes to feeling safe. And I do just want to say that as we've been talking about numbers, specifically when it comes to homicides, these are still individuals' lives that were lost. And decreases in numbers doesn't bring back some of the people that were shot and killed in many cases, Jake. Omar Jimenez, thanks so much. Let's bring in the mayor of Baltimore, Brandon Scott. Mayor Scott, thanks for joining us. So Baltimore had, had fewer than 300 homicides in 2023. That's the lowest number since 2014. Still too many people, but it is the lowest. 
Um, what do you think works and what do you think doesn't work when it comes to reducing the murder rate in Baltimore? Well, Jake, I think uh, I thank you for having me. We have to start off by understanding not only uh, that we see 300 homicides in these years following 2015, much of my lifetime, and that's what pushed me in the public service. We did something that Baltimore had never done before. Uh, we created a comprehensive violence prevention plan that focused in addition to making sure that our police department was operating in a better way, investing historic investments into community violence intervention, building an ecosystem, working with community groups, expanding our hospital space based violence response, making sure that we're focusing in on those who are most at risk to be the victim or perpetrator of gun violence in our city through our group violence reduction strategy, where we give them the option to change their life. And if they don't bring the full weight of law enforcement down, down on them, Doing all of those things is how we've been able to reduce homicides in Baltimore, having the largest single year drop on record for Baltimore from one year to the next. And all the same time, Jake, while seeing our, our police department have fewer arrests, uh, illegal arrests happening under our consent decree, taking 2,100 illegal guns off, nothing is a one-stop shop for reducing homicides and shootings. You have to do all of it. It has mm -hmm. to be comprehensive, and that's what the city should be doing. I, I don't want to take anything away from the achievements uh, of your policies, uh, but we should also know Baltimore as a city saw a sizable 8% dip in population over the last 12 years, according to the census. Is that a, a factor as well in the, in the dropping murder rate? No. Uh, when you look at uh, where we've been historically in Baltimore, right? But also understanding uh, the folks that, that have been leaving. They're not, the folks in neighborhoods that have been impacted by the violence can't pick up and just leave. Uh, we're talking about understanding that Baltimore has bucked national trends, right? In the history of our city, when all the other cities were seeing reductions, uh, Baltimore was seeing increases, right? And this past year, we saw a reduction, but we saw a reduction that was almost twice that of the national Average having a 20% reduction uh, in our homicides in Baltimore. So your strategy specifically, uh, as you as you described, it targets uh, some of the most violent offenders. Other big city mayors, uh, such as Philadelphia's new mayor, Sherelle Parker, she's declared a blanket public safety emergency uh, with an emphasis on shutting down all open air drug markets. Um, why do you think your approach is better? Well, I, I don't disagree with my, my sister mayor's approach. I just think that our approach is the one that's been proven to work in, in our city, right? And when you think about that, we're going after of the most violent groups and they're operating drug shops. That's stuff that we're going to continuously do. But I will remind everybody that when we had zero tolerance policies in Baltimore and everything was about getting drugs and drugs off the streets, violence didn't drop. We have to see that when you focus on the groups, those that are most responsible for the violence is how you get the significant amount of drop in homicides in our city. We're going to continue to go after people that are dealing illegal drugs, using guns, no matter who they are. But we know there's a small group of people, uh, Jake, who are the ones committing the acts of violence. And we go to them and tell them, quite frankly, they get a letter directly from me, the mayor that says, we know who you are. We know what you do. This is your last chance. We will give you every resource to change your life. But if we don't, if you don't, 
we're going to bring the hammer down on you. But when you're doing that, when you have safe streets, community violence intervention workers who are out there, credible messages doing the work, when you're partnering with community organizations like We Are Us and Challenge to Change here in Baltimore who are doing the work, when you're investing into victim mm -hmm. services and the hospital-based response, it's a collective approach. All of it has to matter. When you focus on the guns, no matter where they come from, mm -hmm. over 60% of our guns coming from outside of the state, we have to do all of it. Simply going after drugs is not going to reduce violence. Baltimore Mayor uh, Brandon Scott, um, continued success. Uh, I hope you get that murder rate down to zero. And uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Coming up next on the lead, a man who witnessed one of the most horrific events of the initial Hamas attack on October 7th. His story is tough to hear. It's tough to hear what human beings are capable of doing to another, what Hamas is capable of doing to innocent people. Yet it is important to know what happened from eyewitnesses. We're going to hear his account next. The more time that passes since the October 7th attacks by Hamas on Israel, the more we are learning about the sexual violence and rapes Hamas terrorists committed against Israeli girls and women. Hamas, a terrorist organization that lies all the time, has of course denied claims of rape or sexual assault and witnesses, the ones that are able to speak out or beginning to speak out about what they have seen firsthand. We want to warn you, the details of what you're about to hear from one witness we just spoke to are disturbing. And one of those witnesses is 24-year-old Raz Kohane, who attended the Nova Festival with his friends, and he survived. Um, Raz, I know none of this is easy to talk about, but it's important that the world hear from witnesses. While you were hiding out that day, hiding from Hamas, uh, you saw five men, five of these terrorists, pulling a young woman out of a van. Tell, tell us what you saw next. I hide in the bush, and uh, 30 meters from the bush, I saw a, a white van that arrived uh, near the bush, and uh, from the van, uh, uh, five guys, five uh, uh, civilians is from uh, Gaza. Normal civilians, is not uh, soldiers uh, from Nukba's uh, soldiers. It was uh, <clears throat> regular uh, people from Gaza with uh, normal clothes, and uh, they uh, started to pull their clothes off. Uh, it was it was like a half a circle and uh, the girl was in the middle of the circle and uh, after they pulled the clothes uh, off uh, of the girl uh, they started to one one of them started to to rape her and uh, it was something like a 30, 30 seconds and uh, after uh, he raped her, uh, he take a knife and uh, kill her, murder her, and after he did it, he continued to, to rape the dead body. What was the attitude of, of the of this group while they were doing this? Were, were they were they were they angry? Were they cursing? Were they what, what were they doing? They don't was uh, angry. They they always laugh. 
I think it was for, for, for fun. They murdered a lot of uh, people for fun. They always laugh. What did they do after they, after they raped her and, and killed her? And, and what did they do after that? They started to, to run after a, one couple, boy and a girl, that they saw, and uh, they murdered them, uh, them too. With knives? With a knife and the axes. You know, there are, are people out there um, who deny that there were rapes or sexual assaults against Israeli women on October 7th. Uh, I, I, you're, a witness, you're a witness. What do you say to the people who deny that these things happened? It's a fact. I don't, uh, I don't lie. What, what I saw, it's, it's, what, it's what happened. If someone say that it's not happened, he's is a liar. Because until this moment that I stand here and talk with you, um, always think about what I've saw in this moment in the bush. How did you manage to survive that day? So I keep hiding in the same, uh, in the same bush, something like uh, nine hours until the Israeli soldiers uh, found us and, uh, and take us. What else did you see that day that you think the world needs to know about? Before I arrived to the bush of running in an open field, we was something like 300 people and it was like it was like a range the Hamas shoot from right from left and from behind and they in the open field of so a lot of uh, dead bodies I was very close to some girl and when I passed there I look back and I heard that she's uh, fell on the ground and I'm looking back to the girl and I've, and I saw that she get uh, shot in the head I'm look to the girl but I can't help there help her yeah. I can't so I've keeping uh, run away until I get to the bush I also understand um, that, <coughs> that your girlfriend that you went to the festival with did, did not make it out alive um, tell us about her her name is Maya uh, we have dating for something like two months and uh, I came to the festival uh, because she go to the festival and I wanted to be with her. Uh, the murder the journey started in uh, 6.30 a.m. Uh, she go with her friends to the, to the road, they wanted to, to escape. And me and my friend Shoam and uh, my cousin uh, Yam, we decided to stay in the, in the open area because we didn't want to be a, a, a target. Hamas seen something like thousand cars together, so they shoot to them, all the rockets. So we didn't want to be in the, in the road with a lot of cars because it's like one car, they get shot with a rocket and another car and another car and another car. So when she go with her friends in, uh, in 7 a.m., the, the Hamas start to, they did, a, they did a, a ambush in the, in the road 
And I think that that uh, in seven something like this, uh, they murdered uh, Maya and their friend uh, Karina. It's awful. What else do you want the world to know about that day, uh, Roz? What 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 else should the world know? I want that the world know that we are strong and uh, no matter who is coming to and try to beat us, we are, uh, we are here forever. Raj Cohen, thank you so much uh, for telling us your story. We appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll be right back. A Las Vegas judge is recovering after a stunning courtroom attack caught on video. The defendant jumped over the bench yesterday and started pummeling the judge. The defendant <clears throat> was in court facing a battery charge. The judge had just denied his probation request. The local district attorney says the judge has some bruises and is shaken up, understandably, but will be okay. A marshal was also injured in the attack. The defendant now faces 13 new charges for those actions yesterday. A quick pop over to the 2024 lead. We mentioned this a lot because it's a big deal. Back-to-back -back town halls this evening. Ron DeSantis at 9 Eastern, then Nikki Haley at 10, moderated by Caitlin and Aaron. Only tonight, only here on CNN. Next Wednesday, I'm going to moderate the CNN Republican presidential debate along with my colleague Dana Bash. We will also be live from Des Moines in beautiful Iowa. Until tomorrow, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the Tic Tac at Jake Tapper. You follow the show on X at the Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts, all two hours, just sitting there like a delicious ripe peach. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.